Welcome to Life of the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of the son of one of the pioneers of hip-hop music who grew up in the Bronx, but not as a Yankee fan. I sucked my thumb growing up, and my dad wanted to get me to stop sucking my thumb. And so I told my dad one day, I want to go to a Mets game. I want to see Daryl Strawberry play. My dad said, well, you're going to have to stop sucking your thumb because if Daryl Strawberry looks in the stands and sees you sucking your thumb, he's not going to play. Great psychology. So I bought it, and I got to go to my first Mets game, April 1985, against the Reds. It was calendar day, and it was a 1-1 game going into the bottom of the ninth, and Daryl Strawberry hit a walk-off home run to win it. So I was a baseball fan and a Mets fan after that. Wow. Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers, and coaches, writers, and broadcasters about their lives around baseball from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Robert Ford. Robert, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Well, thanks for having me. Robert Ford has been with the Houston Astros since 2013. He spent seven years broadcasting minor league baseball. He uh, was twice named the Frontier League Broadcaster of the Year in 2003 and 2004. And you grew up in the Bronx. So growing up in the Bronx, let me guess what your favorite team was. You're going to be wrong if you guess. <laughs> uh, my favorite team was the Mets. Oh, was is Mets that right? Growing up. My parents were both from Queens and both sides of the family National League background, you know, you think back to the the Brooklyn Dodgers in particular, you know, Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. That was a big deal in in my family at the time, as you can imagine. And so, yeah, all National League baseball fans who gravitated toward the Mets, uh, you know, my dad and my grandfather in particular, my grandfather on my mom's side, they were huge Mets fans and had been Mets fans since they started. Uh, My dad was at the second game ever played at Chase Stadium in 1964. He wanted to go to the first game, but it was a school night, so his parents said, no, my dad was almost 13 at the time. Well, I guess by 64, he was almost 15, almost 13 when when the Mets started. But, yeah, National League uh, family, baseball family, and the Mets were the team. Uh, When I started getting into baseball, we're talking mid to late 1980s. Daryl Strawberry was my all-time favorite player, and I was five years old, and I sucked my thumb growing up. And my dad wanted to get me to stop sucking my thumb, and so I told my dad one day, I want to go to a Mets game. I want to see Daryl Strawberry play. And so my dad said, well, you're going to have to stop sucking your thumb because if Daryl Strawberry looks in the stands and sees you sucking your thumb, he's not going to play. Great psychology. So I bought it, and I got to go to my first Mets game, April 1985, against the Reds. It was calendar day, and Daryl Strawberry hit a walk-off home run to win it. So I was a baseball fan and a Mets fan after that. Wow. That is so cool. Well, one of the questions I was going to ask you, and you may have just answered it, which is how did you fall in love with baseball? Well, that was the start, but I I still wasn't, you know, I was aware of baseball, but I still didn't follow it closely. I mean, it was always on when I'd go see my dad. My parents were divorced, so, you know, I'd spend weekends with my dad, and it was always on, you know, whatever sport was in season, it was on my dad's television. And it wasn't really until 1988 I started fourth grade that fall, and I, I started at a new elementary school. I had gone to one school for first through third grade, then my mom put me in a different elementary school in the same school district in the Bronx, and the boys in that class, and it was mostly girls, I think it was, it was 35 kids in the class, I think it was 10 or 12 boys, something like that. And all these kids had been together since kindergarten, and here I come in, the new kid on the block, don't know anybody, they don't know me, 
Uh, so it was a bit of a transition, but all the boys were really into baseball. Mm-hmm. And all of them, or most of them, were Yankees fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, of course, they asked me what my favorite team was. I said the Mets. And they accused <laughs> me of being a front runner because, again, this was 1988. The Mets that year wound up going to the playoffs again, whereas the Yankees were beginning a decline before they eventually figured things out and had the great run in the 90s. But they accused me of being a front runner, and then it got even worse when they would ask me basic questions about baseball, and I couldn't answer. Like they'd ask me, "Oh, so who did Keith Hernandez play for before he played for the Mets?" I don't know. See, he doesn't even know. He's not a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. He's a front runner. That's yeah. the only reason, you know. So that got to me, and so my response to that, I was always a pretty voracious reader. I come by it honestly. My mom was a school teacher and a guidance counselor uh, for 34 years at the same public school in the Bronx. And uh, my mom was a big reader and made sure I was too. And so I always had books. My mom always had was getting me books. And whenever I showed an interest in something, my mom would get me more books of that author or that subject, whatever the case may be, to really cultivate my, my interest in reading. And so I started to read about baseball. I wanted to know more about baseball because I didn't want to be embarrassed. That's I didn't want to uh, feel like I didn't know what was going on or what I was talking about. So yeah, so 1988... And then I remember, so it was the fall, so that's the first year that I really, I mean, I had watched the World Series. I remember 1986 very well when the Mets won the World Series, but 1988 was the first year that I made an effort to really pay attention to the playoffs, to both of the the, uh, NLCS and the ALCS that year, and of course the Mets were in the NLCS and lost to the Dodgers, and then, you know, that World Series with the Dodgers against the A's, um, and it was the A's and the Blue Jays in the and uh, in, in the ALCS that year and I, I paid attention tried to watch as much as I could tried to absorb as much as I could and of course we would talk about the games at school and I remember there was one kid going into the World Series who picked the Dodgers we, we all thought he was nuts because <laughs> uh, even by that point I had figured out that the Oakland A's this was the team and the sure. Bash brothers and all that and so 1989 I remember my mom got me a couple of like those baseball preview I remember there was a baseball preview book and there was a baseball preview magazine back when that was a big thing. I don't even know if they still put those out anymore. And, you know, and I devoured both of them going into the 1989 season. So, yeah, I was I followed the Mets very closely starting that year, you know, watched or listened to every game that I could. Um, And back then, you know, we didn't have my mom didn't have cable. My dad did. And back then. It was pretty much 50-50. 75 Mets games were on WWR Channel 9 in New York, and the 75 Mets games were on Sports Channel back then. Uh, so the games that were on TV, on, on Channel 9, I'd, I'd always watch those. Uh, and then the ones that were on Sports Channel, unless I was over at my dad's house, I'd listen to those on the radio. Uh, so, yeah, I really got into it and really fell in love with the sport. And, and that really was the beginning for me kind of this obsession with baseball and really an obsession with sports in general because then that just led to me becoming interested in, you know, once baseball season was over, right, well, now it's football and now it's basketball. And I started, and again, my dad watched all of that. And so, uh, yeah, I started to pay a lot more attention after that. You and I have something in common. Your first Major League Baseball game was April 9th. My very first baseball game was April 9th. Okay. The year was different, 1965. Okay. Which you probably know was the Astros' very first game and the very first game in the Astrodome, yes. and it was against the Yankees. How about that? It was an exhibition game. Mantle hit the first home run in the Astrodome. He sure did. Yeah. Got the first hit. 
He batted leadoff in that game. That's because right. the, as, the, as the legend has it, Judge Hoffines wanted a Texan to got, get the first hit in the Dome, and Mickey lived at Dallas. Johnny Keene mm-hmm. was the manager, and so he was a Texan, so they batted Mickey Mantle leadoff, and he got the first hit, and he got the first home run. Yes, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool, yeah. So you have an interesting story about how you got your job with the Astros. And your partner, Steve Sparks, also has an interesting story because you began in the same year. Tell me yours. So I had been, you know, as a minor league broadcaster for seven years, as you mentioned earlier, the last four of those in Binghamton, New York at AA. At that point, it was for me, how can I get to the big leagues? Like, I feel like I can do this. I feel like if I'm not good enough, I'm pretty close. I want to get some feedback on my stuff to figure out how I can get better and also kind of how can I get noticed by major league teams. That was the other part of it for me. So I got some feedback, and the main things that I that I got out of it were I needed to be a little bit more descriptive, and I got some tips, especially from Rob Brooks, about how to do that. And, and But the main message that I got, and I had a couple of other people who sent me letters with like some detailed, not detailed, but like with a few, a couple of things that I could focus on. But the main thing was, hey, you just need more reps. It's like, okay, well, at least I felt like I was on the right track. So then I wound up getting hired in Kansas City for the Royals flagship station for the 2009 season. The Royals flagship station, KCSP 610 AM, which is still their flagship station, they changed program directors. And their new program director was a guy by the name of Ryan McGuire, who had been the sports director and my broadcast partner in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Interesting. When I did independent league baseball and we did uh, small college basketball and football together. And I also did high school basketball and football out there as well, not with him, but with others. And so he, we had kept in touch and he had told me he was getting this job in Kansas City. He said, yeah, keep it under your hat. The guy I'm replacing doesn't know yet. You know, he winds up getting the job and, you know, we, we, we were having a conversation and he said, you know, I may have something for you. So I was like, okay. And so that's what he had for me. They didn't really have a, a baseball guy or a baseball gal on the staff of the sports talk radio station. And so they wanted someone who could do pre and post for all the Royals games locally. And uh, the post game show was a call in show. That's really, I mean, that was really the meat of the whole thing. Um, and at the time the Royals weren't very good. So, you know, interest was certainly there, but certainly not what it wound up becoming a few years later when they got better. But um, yeah, they wanted someone to do this show and cover the Royals and be at all the home games and watch all the road, all the road games and still do post-game shows for those. And Ryan knew me. He knew how much I love baseball. He knew I was pretty knowledgeable about it, so he gave me a shot, even though I didn't have any sports talk radio experience. Yeah, uh, but you read all those books. I had read all those books. <laughs> uh, but, but he knew I was a baseball guy, and that's really what he wanted. And I think he felt like, all right, he's got the baseball knowledge. I can help him with the other stuff. And that's what he did. The winter uh, after the 2012 season, uh, everybody knew the Astros were hiring. Milo Hamilton had retired. Uh, Brett Dolan and Dave Raymond, who had been working with him because Milo was only doing home games at that point, uh, you know, his new ownership, starting with the 2012 season, they decided that they were not going to bring those two back uh, and got rid of them the last day of the season or the day after the the season ended. And um, so everybody knew this was full-on search. So I wound up getting... An interview. I got a phone call December of 2012 uh, from the head of HR for the Astros at the time. His name Larry Stokes, and he said, "Hey, we're you know we'd love to talk to you about the Astros job. Uh, when can we fly you in for an interview?" 
and I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, I had never done anything like this. I'm not someone who generally gets all that nervous, but I was a bundle of nerves that day. Um, and it wasn't until uh, Martin Luther King Day that I heard something. George Pistolos, the team president, called me and said, yeah, we're still interested in talking to you about the Astros job. Uh, Jim Crane, the owner, he's going to call you later. Okay. So sure enough, uh, Jim calls me and basically wanted to know, um, all right, so... I've listened to your tape. People tell me you're good. Why should I hire you when you don't have any experience, more or less, is what the tone of the conversation, you know, should I take this chance? And I told him, yes, obviously. Um, <laughs> and I told him, so the demo I had sent, when I worked in Kansas City, I would sit in an empty booth to watch the games, an empty broadcast booth at Kauffman Stadium to watch the home games. And a few times a year, I would do play-by-play -play into a tape recorder, or into a recorder, um, just so I'd always have something to send to teams. Um, and so that's what I had sent the Astros. And so I asked Jim, I said, um, did you listen to my, my demo? He said, I did. And uh, he said, it was, it, was at a, it was a Royals game, right? I was like, yeah. I said, um, yeah, I was not calling baseball games every single day um, because I was doing pre and post. I only would call a handful of games a year into a recorder. I said, when I'm calling games every day, I'll sound even better than that. And I believed it. And... Uh, I don't know if it was that or whatever it was, but um, they, the Astros wound up hiring me after that, and Brian Erickson and Jim Crane are the biggest reasons why, because my understanding, I found out later, was basically everyone who was involved in the search, it came down to me and one other, um, another broadcaster who had worked in the majors for a few different teams, but hadn't, I think he had been out of the baseball for a year or two at that point. Uh, but it came down between me and a veteran broadcaster. And everybody else wanted to hire the veteran broadcaster. Uh, Brian Erickson and Jim Crane were the only two who didn't. And, well, Jim Crane owns the team, so that, that helped. And so they wound up hiring me. And, um, you know, they told me I was going to be working with Steve Sparks. Uh, they flew me in February 13th for a little kind of quasi-press conference introducing all of the broadcasters. And... Um, I met Steve Sparks five minutes before that press conference started. Uh, it was My the first goodness. time we'd ever spoken, My first goodness. time we'd ever met. And, uh, <laughs> you know, fortunately, it wound up working, out, working yeah. out really well. Yeah. So that's pretty close to spring training. It was pretty close to spring training. And spring training was longer that year. That was a WBC year. I think it was a week later. I was driving down to Houston, dropping my car off at the stadium and getting on a plane and flying to uh, Orlando for spring training in yeah. Kissimmee. Yeah, yeah. Well, your first year, uh, 2013, it was an interesting time in the Astros' history, too, because they were in the last of their 100-loss seasons right. before they went into three-in-a-row 100-win seasons. I think the first team ever to do that. And you got to be there to see the whole transition for the Astros' team. Yeah, I mean, we knew going into the year, obviously, that the team was rebuilding. I don't think we knew that they were going to lose 111 games. <laughs> I don't know that if we had known that. I, well, I know if we had known that, it wouldn't have changed anything. We were still excited to be in the big leagues. Yeah. But it was, we knew what the situation was. You know, we were at spring training, and we called, Steve and I called. I think there were only two or three games we didn't do, uh, the two of us together. And uh, it was pretty grueling. I remember Bo Porter was the first-year manager, 
and the Astros normally have names on the back of their spring training jerseys, and but that spring, Bo didn't want names on the back of the spring training jerseys because you had to earn the name on the back of the jersey. Ooh, ooh, so, interesting. Yeah, interesting and harder yeah. for the broadcasters <laughs> who had never seen these guys yeah. before for the yeah. most part. The player to be named later. The players to be named later, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, but I mean, it was a baptism by fire. And yeah, the team wasn't very good. Um, but it was still exciting to be in the big leagues, and you're still calling big league baseball. Yeah. And my first year in, in broadcasting in 2002 with the Yakima Bears Northwest League, they had a 22 game losing streak. And when you have a 76 game schedule, and you lose 22 of those in a row, mm-hmm. I mean that hurts anyway. But especially when that's basically a third of your season. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had called bad baseball. I never called a playoff game <laughs> in the minor leagues. I only had one team that finished over 500, and another team that finished at 500. In my seven years in the minors, and I was four years in Kansas City. They were bad then, even though they were starting to get better around the time I left. But they lost every year. So I had seen a lot of losing baseball. And I had also seen, you know, being with the Royals, going through their rebuilding and watching that. I knew what that looked like. And I I had worked in the minors for seven years. I knew prospects. I knew what was important and the importance of developing guys and all of that. So I think all of that really helped me with the way things started off with the Astros when I when I got to Houston in 2013. So they weren't very good. Then 2014, they lost 92 games and, you know, 170. And, I mean, that was a 19-win improvement. That was huge. Uh, I remember the front office was excited when they won their 70th game on the, the next, what was it, the uh, third-to-last game of the season in New York against the Mets. We ended the season against the Mets. And uh, they won the first game of that series and hit 70 wins. And the front office was excited in part because their internal projections had projected this was a 70-win team. And so they were like, hey, this is great. And then 2015 uh, got off to a great start and you know had a great April. They were in first place much of the year, wound up falling out of first place, but still made the postseason as a wild card. Uh, so that was huge. And the first postseason game I ever called was – in my backyard at Yankee Stadium, a wow. wild card game, which the wow. Astros won, you know, to advance and then lost in a division series. In 16, they got off to a slow start, but still had a winning record and were in the playoff hunt until the last week of the season. And then 17, of course, won the World Series, and that was the start of three straight 100-win seasons. Sure was. And, you know, this, this era of Astros baseball. Do you have a, a call that you consider a career highlight for you? For me... Um, I'm obviously thinking 2017. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. game five of the World Series, Alex Bregman hit a walk-off single in the bottom of the 10th to uh, win a game 13-12. to 12. Um, And that's my favorite call. That was a long game. It was trending to be the longest nine-inning game in playoff history, and then it wound up going extras. I mean, there were two game-tying three-run home runs hit by the Astros in that game. I mean, think about that. How yeah. often do you see a game-tying three-run home run? How often do you see a team hit two and win games? The only time it's ever happened in the postseason. And so it was a back-and-forth game. I mean, you know, you hear the cliche about games being boxing matches, but that's what that felt like. I mean, I've never boxed, really, but that's what that felt like. I mean, it was you were going, you know, 12 rounds, these two teams. And, uh, you know, Bregman to win it the way he did. Uh, you know, Derek Fisher was a pinch runner at second and uh, just did slide in ahead of the tag. I mean, there were just everything was there. I was really proud of my call of that, that I had all the details with – you know, base hit to left, Andre Ethier, who had come into the game late to play left field. He was one who fielded it, threw home, knew who the pinch runner was, you know, got all those details right. And it was just a great moment on top of that. Uh, so, yeah, that's my favorite call of, of all the calls that I've had. First pitch. 
And Alex Lyons is in the left center field. That's a base hit. Fisher around third and coming home. Ethier up with the baseball. The throw to the plate. Not in time. Astros win. They lead the World Series three games to two. Well, one more question, and then I'll let you go. I know you got some work to do. Your dad is Rocky Ford. He is. I was surprised to know that because of my background in music radio. He's one of the pioneers, one of the leading producers of hip-hop. Yeah, well, I mean, he was there at the beginning. Sure was. Um, Billboard magazine? Billboard magazine. He was a a writer, music reviewer for Billboard, and he started there in production in the early 70s. And because um, he had worked for he worked in production for Forbes magazine, and then got hired by Billboard in production. Uh, so you know he wasn't writing or anything, but back then that was how you would kind of get into writing at a magazine is you'd start off in something else. And I don't know that that was ever my dad's aspiration, but the way my dad put it to me was he got to start writing and reviewing uh, music acts and going to concerts because the white writers were afraid to go to the Apollo Theater in Harlem. That's what he used to tell me. And so, I mean, they didn't have, I mean, especially, I mean, you're talking mid-1970s, there weren't exactly a whole lot of black people on staff or people who weren't white on staff, but my dad was one. And so that's how he became a music reviewer and a writer for Billboard. And, I mean, he reviewed, and he didn't just review, you know, quote-unquote black music acts. I mean, he reviewed everything from the Doobie Brothers to Aretha Franklin to, you know, I mean, you name it the eagles uh, i mean he's got so many stories i mean you know elton john he once interviewed richard pryor in his hotel room before richard pryor appeared on saturday night live when he was guest hosting i believe that was either the f- i think that was the first year of saturday night live and claimed until his dying day that richard pryor stole the joke from him which is another story <laughs> although one of his friends who was there did confirm it for me after wow. my dad passed wow but, so he you know and then he covered disco uh, you know, was right at the forefront of that movement. Studio 54? He was at Studio 54. Sure. Saw Frankie Crocker, the famous DJ in New York City, at WBLS, riding in on a white horse, which was always a famous story. Yeah. Riding in on a white horse at Studio 54. My dad was there for that. Wow. Um, but anyhow, he also was, because in some ways, from the way my dad explained it to me, what became rap music, hip hop, kind of grew out of disco. And some of it was the displeasure with disco in the black community. And disco was certainly very popular in the black community, but for a lot of DJs, there were other things that they just liked more. And so they would find these records, these obscure records, but had long instrumentals that guys could just talk over or rap over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the uh, Apache by the Incredible Bongo Band, that was an obscure song that no one remembered from the early 70s, but. DJs found it, and hey, there's this long. It's the whole song's an instrument, instrumental. That's interesting. You know, you can rap over it. That's interesting. You can talk over it. Yeah. And so, so have you ever done a rap during an Astros game? No, no, no. <laughs> I know, I know where my talent lies. Uh, but, but anyhow, so my dad. So that's how my dad kind of got started, um, and he wrote uh, the first article ever in a mainstream publication about rap music, and it was about. And I found it, you know, in Billboard magazine. It was about how these DJs in the Bronx. We're going to record stores asking for these obscure records uh, with these long instrumentals, uh, sections in them. So he started writing about it. You know, at one point, you know, he wound up getting laid off from Billboard. They had some cuts. He got laid off. My mom was pregnant with me. This was 1978, the latter part of 1978. My mom was pregnant with me. My dad needed money. And, you know, he was doing some freelance stuff and, and still doing some things, but wasn't working full time. 
was on the bus in Queens to go visit my mom, and uh, there was a, a kid putting up flyers for a rap show on the bus, the Q2 bus, public bus in Queens. And uh, he started talking to the kid, and he said, um, who do you work for? And he said, um, I work for uh, my brother, Russell Simmons. And so my dad handed him his card, and he says, well, can you tell him to call me? So that kid was um, wanted to becoming Run Simmons of Run DMC, Russell Simmons' younger brother. Russell Simmons started off as a club promoter and promoted some acts. Um, and so, yeah, so my dad got hooked up with Russell Simmons, who was managing, among others, Curtis Blow. Um, they had been friends. They knew each other from City College in Harlem. They had gone to school there together. Both had dropped out, um, and that's where they met. And uh, Curtis Blow was from Harlem, and um, you know, and my dad was able to get him the first record deal for a rapper on a major label with Mercury Records, and it was originally for one song, Christmas Rapping, uh, which my dad had the idea for because he knew from other people that he had worked with in the music industry, if you have a, a seasonal record, a Christmas record, you will always make money off of that. Yeah. Every year they will play it around That's Christmas right. time. That's right. And so that became the first single. It did well. They got an album out of it. That's uh, My dad wrote The Breaks, which became the big hit off of Curtis Blow's first album, uh, which was you know also named Curtis Blow. And um, yeah, that started a career for my dad more as a record producer. I mean, he, he that was pretty much the end of his songwriting, his time with Curtis Blow in the late 70s, early 80s, but yeah, he became uh, a record producer, um, worked at Def Jam and Russ Productions for Russell Simmons for a number of years in the mid-80s when I was a kid and didn't know what was going on and didn't realize that when my dad would pick me up from school and take me to his office for a couple of hours before he left for the day, LL Cool J was there, the Beastie Boys were there after their first album, Run DMC. I, rem I do remember meeting Daryl McDaniel, the other half of Run DMC, uh, but yeah, all these people were there. I had no idea what was going on until I was much older that, you know, this was happening. Uh, but yeah, I wound up doing well. And then obviously with the royalties he got from publishing from the Curtis Blow songs he did, um, you know, some of that helped pay for my college education. Wow. Um, That's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, so many stories. He, uh, you know, my dad's two biggest passions were music and sports. Mm -hmm. Um and so, uh, you know, those were the things that we talked most about. That's what we spent the most time doing, whether it yeah. was watching games or watching music videos yeah. or talking about music. I mean, that was such a big part of my time with my dad and, and you know, the, the connection and the bond that we had. Well, as a native Texan and a longtime Astros fan, this is great for me to catch up with you. I've admired your work for many, many years. And Robert Ford, thank you for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Thanks for having me on, John. Good to see you. Good to see you. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Gubernale. The project manager is Andrew Miller. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of Life at the Ballpark. <laughs>